Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. For this episode, we could not have anyone better to join us to discuss this week's topic of aortic stenosis. I was joined by Dr. Steve Dorman, interventional cardiology consultant at the Bristol Heart Institute, who subspecializes in transcatheter aortic valve implantation, or TAVI. We go through the correct approach to a PACES cardiology station and what signs to look out for in a patient with aortic stenosis. Steve and I discussed some answers to the common examiner questions, and after that, I introduced the new feature, Quiz the Consultant, where our bosses take on a quick-fire quiz on a topic of their own choosing, with the caveat being it can't be related to medicine. Don't forget to like and follow us on social media, at Prepaces Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and most importantly of all, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast, the only podcast that gives you free, open access medical education that you can digest on your way to work, in the gym, or wherever you're choosing to revise for the MRCP Paces exam. Today's episode is a dive into a station we know features in Paces time after time, aortic stenosis. I think it would be fair to say that what our guest doesn't know about aortic stenosis isn't worth knowing. To help us navigate through aortic stenosis, we are joined by Dr. Steve Dorman. Steve is an interventional cardiology consultant at the Bristol Heart Institute, who plays a leading role in delivering the transcatheter aortic valve implantation or TAVI service within the trust. I think it would be fair to say that we couldn't have anyone better joining to discuss the topic of aortic stenosis. So Steve, how do you describe your involvement in treating patients with aortic stenosis? Thanks, Sam. Um, so I started off as a stent doctor, and TAVI's really sort of exploded in the last five years. And so increasingly, probably 70% of my time is spent doing uh, aortic stenosis. We've now got 24 randomized controlled trials from the low risk through to the inoperable that are all demonstrating that TAVI is a very viable option. So there's, there's going to be a real explosion in the use of TAVI 
for uh, aortic valve replacement in the next few years. So I'm the lead of the TAVI service in Bristol and um, yeah, I really enjoy doing it because it's a very satisfying procedure to do because the patients generally feel better and live longer afterwards. Perfect. So as I said, we've got an esteemed expert joining us to talk about his area of specialism. And not only will Dr. Dormer be giving us an expert's view of aortic stenosis, he will also be the first consultant to act as a guinea pig on our new feature, Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our bosses take on a number of questions on a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the caveat that it can't be anything to do with medicine. So Steve, before we jump into aortic stenosis, what have you named as your specialist subject and why? And Sam, this is a bit of a tricky one because I really don't have a social life because I spend my life in the hospital. But, <laughs> but uh, accepting that I, you forced me to name one, I've named foiling uh, foils as the technology to be quizzed on. And this is uh, foils in the context of windsurfing and surfing. Yes, foils in, in the context of watercraft, but particularly windsurfing, kitesurfing. This was something which is completely new to me and it was a a real blast uh, researching for the quiz. So we've got that coming up um, towards the end of the show. And since we've introduced our guest, let's jump into this week's topic of aortic stenosis. So, Steve, just to set the scene, the cardiology station is a purely examination station, which is most likely the place where aortic stenosis is going to come up. So no history is available apart from a very brief one-liner as a lead into the examination. The candidates will get six minutes to examine the patient and ascertain the patient has aortic stenosis before having four minutes of questions from the examiner. Now we know that there are a number of congenital syndromes which can be associated with forms of aortic stenosis, but we're very much focusing on the conventional aortic stenosis that we tend to see more in hospital than the congenital forms. With regard to the key aspects of examination, I thought we could cover this either in one or two ways, which is either we go through the examination chronologically, but I felt it would be better for us to cover the most pertinent findings of an examination as you find them. And the clear and most obvious sign that you have a patient with aortic stenosis would be the murmur. So Steve, what does the characteristic murmur of aortic stenosis sound like? So I think the murmur is the one thing that you will pick up on um, and does sound characteristic of AS. It's quite hard to describe. Um, It's a sort of whoosh, whoosh, and Uh, The longer it is late peaking, the more severe it is. And it's one of the few murmurs that there is a good agreement between cardiologists that they can use to grade the severity. Now, the one exception to that is as it becomes critical, ironically, the murmur gets quieter. So um, now you should be seeing less and less critical AS in the PACES uh, exam because I would hope that they would be operated on or have a TAVI. So um, it is a reasonably reliable murmur. Um, It's a crescendo, decrescendo murmur. And I'm afraid there's no substitute for just hearing quite a few of them, but it definitely sounds different from the mitral regurgitant murmur. I, I think the clue you'll get first is from feeling the pulse. We'll go on to the pulse in a second. If the pulse is slow rising, that's giving you a clue that you're going to be hearing a crescendo, decrescendo murmur. Like you said, it's critically important to just listen to as many murmurs as you possibly can to be able to differentiate between that. As you just said, 
you'll actually most of the time be feeling the pulse before you go on to listen to the chest. So in these patients where you are listening to the patients that have aortic stenosis, actually getting a reliable instinct for what a slow rising pulse feels like will then make you prick your ears up and think this could be aortic stenosis. So Steve, you mentioned about the slow rising pulse. So that can be, as we've said, it's difficult to perfectly describe it. And obviously the experience of palpating the pulse and getting an instinct for how it feels, but trying your your utmost Mm. best, how (laughs) would you describe that slow rising pulse? Uh, yeah, again, it's got to be experienced rather than described, but slow and late, I guess, are the features that you feel of it. it, it you, you expect that pulse to be coming in sooner than it does. And when you feel it, you think, oh, that's a bit late. Um, and it's just more prominent than you, than you expect it to be. So, um, yeah, so as soon as you've got that and you've got a systolic murmur, then you're thinking, is this AS, basically? Mm. The other thing to note about the murmur itself is obviously the radiation. You can hear the murmur throughout the chest a lot of the time. We were talking just before um, the recording about the Gallivardin phenomenon, which it was something maybe wasn't familiar familiar with. (laughs) For me, it was very much during my Pace's revision of get out of jail free card for something which is a murmur which is heard throughout the chest. And if you're not sure, although you can hear it maybe at the apex, you can hear it in the axilla, often, just to cover your bases, you can say it's the Gallivardin phenomenon, which is the radiation of a murmur of aortic stenosis across the chest into the apex to mimic something like a mitral regurgitation or other murmurs. The other thing which is characteristic of aortic stenosis is radiation to the carotids. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it is. I I think, if I'm being honest, I, I think we you would expect somebody to be able to pick up a systolic murmur. You'd ideally be ask them to be able to characterise it. But the reality is that all these things do play second fiddle to further investigations. So um, in some ways, it's a game. It's like the driving test. You have to do mirror signal manoeuvre. You have to go through it. So uh, listen to what Sam has to say. But realistically... I would expect somebody to get a systolic murmur. I'd like them to tell me it was radiating up, radiating up to the carotids, but the reality is you can hear it in lots of different places depending on the shape of somebody's chest. And I think the other point which we'll come on to later in the episode as well is covering your bases in the differential diagnoses, which it could also be. Yeah. Other potential signs that you could find might be a complication as such of aortic stenosis. And these are seen relatively frequently on the cardiology wards, at least here in the Bristol Heart Institute, where we do do a lot of TAVI. And these would be relatively common signs of simple heart failure, really. So whenever you get a murmur in paces, your next question is, is there overt cardiac decompensation clinically on examination? Yeah, edema, bibasal crackles, raised JVP. Now, the reality is most of the aortic stenotics that are stable for paces probably won't have active decompensation. So the chest will probably be clear, the the, the um, JVP won't be up and there won't be edema, but there may be. So I just, I would associate the question, the, the examiner is always going to say, is there evidence of active decompensation? Or I would be saying that because it, it's a poor prognostic marker. So you always want to just have that little triad um just have ticked it off in your brain but most of the time the aortic stenotics are not going to present to a paces uh, scenario with decompensation because frankly we should be treating them more quickly 
Absolutely. The last couple of uh, signs, which potentially you could pick up, but again, they're not going to be the um, the things which the examiner is expecting you to come out with first, although they may um, lend credence to your conclusion of aortic stenosis. And these, um, a lot of these actually are, are signs found on palpation. So, um, for example, something like a displaced apex beat, which might be indicative of left ventricular hypertrophy as a result of long-standing aortic stenosis, or a left ventricular heave, or even a palpable thrill, um, which, although we do see a lot of um, TAVI patients, they come around quite infrequently. Yeah, and if I'm honest uh, here, I would, if you think you've picked it up, you could give a soft sign to the examiner, but no one's going to fail you for, uh, no one's, you're not going to be diagnosing aortic stenosis uh, on the basis of any of the palpation symptoms. Perfect. And then, again, this is a very soft sign, which obviously has many, many different causes, but conjunctival pallor as a sign of anemia um, is possible. Obviously, there are many, many causes of anemia far beyond the scope of this podcast episode. But in a patient with aortic stenosis, there are a number of reasons why a patient may be anemic. So um, obviously, this might come into the questions maybe at the end. But Steve, do you want to tell us why why are um, aortic stenosis particularly prone to developing anemia? anemia. I think th- if somebody spotted anemia with aortic stenosis, I would be very impressed. And actually, it is a real thing that we see. Um, you get the anemia of chronic disease, first of all, because most of our patients are elderly. But the thing that we see more often is angiodysplasia. And you can have patients presenting with hemoglobins of 6 or 7 with critical aortic stenosis, severe aortic stenosis, and it's not that uncommon. So actually, the association Hade syndrome is very real. You're probably not going to see it in a PACEX exam. But it would be nice to say there's no evidence of anemia suggesting that there is not an overt problem with um, a, a GI bleed or with angiodysplasia and Hade syndrome. Mm. So. And is there any association between, or have you found any association between the severity of aortic stenosis and the um, occurrence of HADES or angiodysplasia? Uh, we, I mean, I, I don't. We probably do about 200, 220 TAVs a year, and I would say that every year we get four or five good going HADES syndromes that we see in that number who've dropped their hemoglobins to five. And then what we do find is actually there is a relatively good improvement. They don't require transfusion afterwards. I can't say I fully understand why, um, and you can't promise the patient that that's the case. But we do see people who are entirely transfusion dependent ceasing to need it. It's almost always in association with proper severe high-end aortic stenosis. It's not in association with low-grade, you know, uh, low-grade peak gradients. Mm. One of the things which comes up in books quite often, or at least in some of the revision resources, is hemolysis through a native aortic valve. Mm. And um, Steve, you told me before that this is vanishingly rare <laughs> and as is very much a textbook yeah. note. Rather well, we, than... just, we see it in context of valves that we put in the heart. So we can see hemolysis on a TAVI valve, on a prosthetic aortic valve. We just don't see it very commonly in the context of native valves. I suppose if you've got uh, a severely degenerated one with endocarditis associated with it, then suddenly you've got a, a bit more of a milieu. But it's, it's vanishingly rare to see hemolysis in combination with a native aortic valve. Mm. So just to recap very quickly, so we've gone through the um, the characteristic murmur of aortic stenosis being a crescendo-decrescendo murmur. Obviously, you're hearing it loudest 
at the aortic area. And one other thing uh, which is probably worth noting, or at least worth noting in your description of the murmur, is during your manoeuvres to accentuate the murmur, it should be loudest on held expiration rather than quieter, or at least you would hope that it's, it should be accentuated because of that. It may be associated with signs of uh, LV failure or heart failure, so looking for raised jugular venous pressure, bibasal crepitations or peripheral or sacral edema. And if you're feeling the pulse, always check for a slow rising pulse that's weak and late relative to its expected characteristics. So once you get to the end of the examination, you'll be expected to present the patient back to the examiner with your findings, followed by some questioning. Myself and Steve are going to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we're back, we'll be covering the common sorts of questions which you may be asked by the examiners and hopefully give you the correct answers to those questions. We'll be back in just a couple of moments. Welcome back to the Pre-Paces podcast, where we are joined by Dr. Steve Dorman, a consultant interventional cardiologist who subspecializes in the TAVI service at the Bristol Heart Institute. So we've spoken a bit already about the examination aspect of a station of a patient with aortic stenosis. And now we're moving on to the four minutes after the examination where you'll face questions from the examiner. And at least what I've been taught from my seniors, which you may agree with Steve, I don't know, you're often encouraged to spontaneously present the patient, present the pertinent findings, and then almost in continuation of your presentation, discuss the differential diagnoses, the investigations, and the management. So why don't we cover each of those in turn? What would you want a candidate to cover in the differential diagnoses of a patient with aortic stenosis? So essentially, you want to come away from this examination, and hopefully you'll have picked up a systolic murmur. Uh, you may or may not be confident that it's AS, or it could be something else. So the, so the first question I would ask as an examiner, or in your presentation is, I want you to know what's the differential diagnosis of uh, systolic murmur. Now, you may be good enough to know it's an ejection systolic versus a pan-systolic, and you may have picked up all those subtle clinical signs that lead you to it, but I don't think the examiner cares so long as you're consistent. So consistency is the most important thing. So if you're confident it's an ejection systolic murmur, I would lead off with there is an ejection systolic murmur consistent with aortic stenosis. However, I would like to see an ECG to confirm there's evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy and evidence of an echocardiogram to confirm the gradients. If you're not so confident, you could say there's clearly a systolic murmur. Uh, my, my principal differential diagnosis here would be with a mitral regurgitant murmur. The patient's age suggests it's unlikely to be um, uh, a, a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy murmur. And the, the other murmurs, pulmonary stenosis, vanishingly rare, VSD, tends to be in a post-infarct scenario. You're going to be at least 50 or 60 and your mortality post-VSD is very, unless it's a congenital VSD, of course, in which case they'll be very young, but if they're a post-infarct VSD, it's unlikely. So so the age is a really good discriminator here before you lead off. Yeah, absolutely. So although um, obviously we said at the head of the podcast that we wouldn't be covering the congenital 
aspects in detail, they are important to note as they are potential differential diagnoses for a patient with a systolic murmur. And I guess one other, one other thing just to mention and highlight is that aortic sclerosis will cause often a softer systolic murmur. There are a number of differentiating factors between aortic stenosis and sclerosis. So um, do you know what they are? Clinically, no. <laughs> I, I know I, what, what you'll discover is I'm very good at looking at the echo these days. <laughs> and uh, I don't think... You can tell... A, I mean, I would say you can tell an aortic sclerotic murmur because it's just much shorter in nature. So uh, listening to an AS murmur that's severe, it's a... Whereas the it will be a... That's, so uh, it's that a, is the best effort I can a give great, you to a, a great impression there of both murmurs. Yeah, so I would agree that it's a, it's often, at least in my experience, it's a lot softer yeah. and a lot shorter yeah. and often a lot less harsh sounding than aortic stenosis. Um, and I I believe also it doesn't tend to radiate to the carotids no. as much. And so leading on from there, so you've led out with your differential diagnoses, and then I guess the investigations of which Steve you mentioned a couple already. So an ECG looking for left ventricular hypertrophy and the critical investigation is going to be an echocardiogram which we'll come on to. I know we talked about differential diagnoses but often as well they will ask about the etiology or the underlying cause of the aortic stenosis and in my experience this is often quite age dependent as to um, you and you sort of have to make a judgment as to the patient in front of you as, as to what it could be and without a history you're very sort of limited in that but um, the majority of patients you'll see will be generally elderly but it could be important to mention all the common causes of aortic stenosis so steve what are the most common causes that we see as causes of aortic stenosis so, so probably 80 percent of aortic stenosis in the uk population is degenerative calcific so as soon as your patient's between the ages of 70 and 85 that's going to be your most likely gambit now true bicuspid it starts presenting from mid 40s up to 60 so bicuspid congenital bicuspid you do see at that sort of age group and then there's a gray zone of um, depending on how you choose to classify your uh, bicuspid valves you will see bicuspids in the elderly population but more often they're not they're sort of fused physiological ones rather than true congenital bicuspids rheumatic fever I can't say I've seen one in the last couple of years from an aortic valve perspective so we don't really see that mm. so etiology you know we're increasingly thinking is rather similar to atherosclerotic disease it's an inflammatory process associated with some of the typical symptoms as soon as you've got somebody in their 70s to their mid 80s it's degenerative calcific that's going to cover off 80 percent of cases and bicuspids probably five ten percent um the thing you can be certain of is if they're in their 40s or their 50s, this is not a tricuspid, this is not a trileaflet valve. This is almost certainly a bicuspid valve. Mm. Um, th there's no certainties, but I would give you a 95% chance. Yeah. So I guess the lesson there is just, obviously the most common cause is degenerative calcification, but at least to cover your backs, if, you, if unsure, you can mention it could also be a bicuspid valve, or in extremely rare cases, it could be rheumatic fever. Okay, so then we can get on to um, other questions that the examiners may ask, particularly regarding severity of aortic stenosis. And they may mention this with regard to clinical or echocardiographic signs. So Steve, what are they? What are the signs that you would rely on to diagnose or ascertain that someone has severe aortic stenosis, either clinically or on yeah. echo? 
So I think severity, there's good, there's good evidence that the, the nature of the murmur actually predicts severity. So cardiologists can independently say this is more severe. So the murmur is the first thing, uh, having a slow rising pulse and having evidence of cardiac decompensation. So those three things clinically would immediately make you suspicious. I'm not sure we're allowed history here, are we? History is... Um, not in the examination not, station. No. You, you might get a lead and you might say yeah. get a single sentence saying this patient has presented with breathlessness, breathlessness. or chest pain yeah. or blackouts. So then we get on to the echo. Basically, the echo is the seminal investigation. Most people with proper AS will have LVH on the ECG. So if you're given a 12-lead ECG, look for left ventricular hypertrophy. It's very common. Uh, they may have left bundle branch block. And the reason we're interested in the ECG is that 10% of patients who have a TAVI go on to have a pacemaker afterwards. So we're very interested to know, do they have pre-existing conduction disease? So I'm always interested to see the ECG, to see if there's LVH, and to see if they've got, to, to rate what their chances of needing a pacemaker after the TAVI are. Mm. Uh, that, that nevertheless doesn't diagnose the severe AS, and what diagnoses it is, it is the echo. So you're looking for a peak gradient across the aortic valve of over 64, or a mean gradient of over 40, and uh, those are the standard criteria. Now, you can index to body surface area, and uh, a lot of people in the echo community will say that the best measure is in fact the, the ratio of the velocity across the aortic valve to the velocity in the LVOT. It's called the dimensionless index and it takes account of the fact that um, there's an inherent error when you measure the aortic valve area. So the aortic valve area is in the criteria but it, it, it can be fairly significantly underestimated or overestimated just by where you place your your calipers. So we don't really like aortic valve area. We like the dimensionless index, um, which is just a measure of the LVOT velocity ratio relative to the aortic valve. But to keep it simple, sorry to summarise, because <laughs> I've probably confused you completely by that. You're looking for a peak gradient of over 64 and a mean of over 40. So stick to the gradients. Yeah. Consultant cardiologists don't like the <laughs> valve area. They like the dimensionless index. Excellent. And then we actually get into your realms, Steve, which is determining whether or not someone would be suitable for a TAVI versus a surgical yeah. aortic valve replacement. So when you have your TAVI MDT, what are the sort of things you consider when considering a patient for an aortic valve replacement or a TAVI? So I think to, uh, to keep it simple, the rule of thumb I would use is if the patient is 75 or over, their default, re their default strategy should be TAVI unless they're not technically favourable. If they're 75 and under, their default strategy should be surgical aortic valve replacement unless the surgeons don't think they're favourable. So that's your starting point. Now, the reason behind that is that we only have seven, eight years worth of follow-up on TAVI valves. And so there are still issues about longevity of TAVI valves. As soon as you start putting it in younger people, you're putting it in bicuspid valves. That's an off-label indication. There's a higher pacemaker rate with TAVI over surgery, and therefore it's a bigger deal in a younger person. So anyone under the age of 75 should be referred, I would say, uh, to the heart team, but is likely to get a surgical operation unless there's a good reason not to. 
By contrast, over 75, all the evidence shows you'll make a much quicker recovery, you'll have higher effective orifice areas, uh, you'll have less atrial fibrillation, less chronic kidney disease, and you'll be bouncing around within sort of 48, 72 hours if you have a TAVI. Now the features that make you unsuitable for a TAVI or less appealing for a TAVI are if you've got bad peripheral vascular disease, if you've got malignant features of the annulus where the valve's going in so it won't sit correctly, and if you've got a lot of coronary artery disease that's going to be relatively complicated to treat with stents. So those would be the main things that would make me think, okay, this patient isn't looking so straightforward. From a surgical perspective, uh, the surgeons have a number of things they don't like. They don't like porcelain aortas. If you've had radiotherapy to the chest, they don't like that. If you've had a previous stenotomy, they don't like reopening things, understandably. If you've got a patent lemograph to the LED, they won't be liking that. If you've got chronic liver disease, they won't like that. If you've got pulmonary hypertension, they won't like that. And if you've got a bad left ventricle, they won't like that either. So those will all be reasons why people under the age of 75 might be asked to be considered for a TAVI. So uh, the rule of thumb, over 75, they need a TAVI CT to check their suitability. Um, under 75, you're probably thinking about a surgical option in the first instance. And what a wonderful segue that takes us on to, which is what is the usual workup for a surgery or a TAVI? So as Steve has just mentioned there, a TAVI-gated CT, which will give you a lot of that information regarding the porcelain aorta, the measurements of the valvular annulus, etc. So that's a critical part of the workup. But obviously we go back and start with the very basics. Uh, routine blood tests as a matter of uh, routine. I always liked to justify it by saying we're going to um, it may affect any drugs that we choose to start after <laughs> after any procedure. Often if they are a smoker or they have been in the past the surgeons or indeed uh, yourself Steve will um, want to get some lung function tests to see how uh, well they're doing from that perspective and as you mentioned patent lemografts or um, any other reason that they might have coronary artery disease or another reason to um, perform a bypass operation would be um, indicated prior to being considered for surgery or a TAVI. Um, one thing which I found doing my research for this Steve was um, the use of carotid dopplers. Do we tend to do those routinely anymore? Um, I certainly don't. I mean if the surgeons want it they can Usually things like carotid dopplers are done if a surgeon doesn't want to do an operation in the nicest possible way. So they're used. And so increasingly, I would say the gatekeeper examination is a TAVI is an ECG gated CT. You probably need an angiogram um, if the CT hasn't shown the coronary arteries well enough. And then everything else is pretty much up for discussion. Lung function, um, carotid dopplers. Uh, and it's not mandatory and certainly we wouldn't be doing them unless we were being led by something. I mean, the advantage of the TAVI CT is you get a free look at the lungs with the, uh, on the lung windows. So you get a bit of a look there and you might have an indication to be thinking about lung function tests afterwards. Routine buds we certainly do have to do. Carotid Dopplers, you'd have to ask a surgeon. Um, I suspect when you think about the context of aortic stenosis operations and why you might be doing... Um, making it more complicated and doing a carotid endarterectomy, I think most of the time you'll find you either just get on and do the valve replacement or you refer them for a TAVI. Excellent. So as we come towards the end, when you come towards the end of the station, you get asked more and more in-depth questions. And some of those might be, 
with untreated aortic stenosis, what are the potential complications of that? And then I guess, as you, you may mention your management with regard to um, something like a TAVI, as it's likely to be an elderly patient, you'll see what are the complications of a TAVI. So we've already mentioned a few of these as we've gone through regarding the complications of aortic stenosis. So obviously heart failure as a result, those are the signs we mentioned earlier you'd be looking for. Brady and tachyarrhythmias um, can occur in, uh, in this population. As Steve mentioned earlier, hemolytic anemia, not so common um, that we would see. And as we mentioned earlier as well, anemia or angiodysplasia, Hade syndrome as a result of um, aortic stenosis. Obviously, we keep an eye on the patients that you do the TAVIs on, Steve. And what complications are we observing for when, uh, when you've done a TAVI in the sort of the, the yeah. peri-procedural period? So, so the big complications of TAVI are the commonest one is needing a pacemaker, and that's why we look at the ECG beforehand. 10% of people who have a TAVI ultimately go on to need a pacemaker. The next thing is we put a great big tube in their groin, and so vascular access accounts for 5% of the complications of TAVI, and they either need a stent or an operation to fix that. And then 2% of the time, something pretty awful happens like a stroke, a heart attack, we block a coronary, um, we have annular rupture, we perforate the apex. It's a wide variety of things that can happen. Uh, and when I consent a patient for a TAVI, they always look a little worried at this point. And then I have to remind them that actually their prognosis untreated is around 50% one year mortality. So the prognosis of untreated aortic stenosis is worse than the vast majority of cancers. And the mortality is higher on the waiting list for TAVI than it is from the procedure uh, within the United Kingdom. So we have to get the right um, perspective for the patient. This is a serious condition, but it's entirely treatable. And the most likely thing you're going to get is either needing a pacemaker afterwards or a vascular access complication. But 2% of the time, something pretty bad can happen. Mm-hmm. I think that brings us pretty nicely to the end of the station so hopefully there we've managed to give you a rundown of the examination aspects of a patient with aortic stenosis the signs you would look for and then the common sorts of questions regarding the differential diagnosis investigations and management of a patient with aortic stenosis so myself and steve are going to take another very brief break but after the break we're going to be coming back and steve is going to be the first guinea pig on quiz the consultant where he'll be answering questions on windsurfing foils so don't go anywhere we'll be back just after a break And welcome back to the Pre-Paces podcast. We all know consultants are experts in their fields, but what else occupies the brilliant minds of our consultants that isn't to do with medicine? I'm laying down the gauntlet to each consultant who comes on the show to give me a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the one caveat being it can't be anything to do with medicine. Whoever comes out on top at the end of the series will bag a coveted Pre-Paces podcast mug. So... Steve, what have you chosen as your specialist subjects? I've chosen foils for um, wind surfaces and kind surface. Excellent. So uh, this is the way it's going to work. So there are 10 questions in total. You can either try and answer it first time, for which you've got two points, or you can take multiple choice options, and that will give you one point. And as I said, you're in with a chance to win a coveted, pre-paces podcast mug so 10 
questions coming up on windsurf foils. A foil is an underwater glider that allows you to fly over the water by applying what type of force? That's interesting. It's like the force of a wing, so it's a hydrodynamic force? Absolutely correct for two whole points. Hydrodynamic force. Question number two. According to windfoilzone.com, what are the perfect conditions to learn to windfoil? You don't want it too windy, basically. So I would say two to four, force four to two, uh, between, uh, yeah, uh, force three to four, force three to four, they'll probably want as perfect conditions. Okay. It's less, it's even less complicated than forces. Uh, I'm going to, so light wind, you said light wind, which I'm going to give you two points for. It's light wind, no chop. So that's yeah. another two points. <laughs> Number three. In windfoiling, what is a catapult? I can tell you because I've experienced it. It's very painful. <laughs> You're attached to a harness and you don't manage the board well and you get slung around the front of the board. <laughs> and depending on what you're wearing, it's either painful or not painful. It is indeed. It's a type of crash. Question number four. Again, according to windfoilzone.com, <laughs> assuming a basic beginner knowledge of foiling, how long does it? Uh, do they say it should take you to, in, in inverted commas, get flying? And it's a range. It's a it's a time range. Well, I would say an hour. If you're a decent windsurfer, within an hour. If you're converting from being a decent, now they're probably going to be a bit more conservative. So, uh, but I would say realistically, within one to four hours, if you're a decent windsurfer, you could be foiling in low wind conditions. I'm going to give it to you. It's. Two to four hours is what they've said. You said one to four. I'm giving it to you. That's very kind. I'm looking forward to the mug. (laughs) So which part of the windfoil will give you the ability to fly? Well, it's the the, uh, the main foil that... What's the foil? Um, uh, What are they going to say? You can take the options. Give me some options. Okay. Is it A, the back wing... Or, uh, AKA the stabilizer. Yeah. Is it B the front wing? Is it C the sail? Or is it D the fuselage? Uh, it's the sail or the front wing. Um, and I'm really. And what's the question? Which uh, is which part of the windfoil will give you the ability to fly? The sail. Let's go with the sail. So they say the back wing. Damn. That's that's, <laughs> a, that's another one from windfallzone.com. I can't argue with them. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, we've just said that it was the stabiliser that gave you the ability to fly. Um, The question is, does a larger stabiliser give you more or less downforce than a small one? Bigger foils will lift you higher up, so I suppose the downforce is more. Absolutely correct. More, it tilts the nose up, apparently. Question seven, windsurf foils are usually constructed of two materials name either one well, it's carbon fiber they're very expensive cost about a grand each absolutely so correct question eight another according to windfoil zone you can tell where i got my research from can't you <laughs> what is the average windfoil cruising speed i'll give you five knots either way so you'll be planing and i would hope you would be doing at least 10 to 15 knots I would be disappointed if you were doing any less than that so yeah maybe 15 to 20 let's go with 15 to 20 it's 20 knots is the correct answer question 9 
What is the name of the current Windfoil World Champion? I have absolutely no idea. Well, you had to fall at one <laughs> hurdle, didn't you? It's Tom Goyard, or Goyard. Never heard of him Good myself. I'm sure he's a very successful young man. I'm sure he is. Um, and what part... Uh, this is your last question. Yeah. Question 10. What part of the foil connects the front wing to the back wing? The fuselage, probably. Absolutely fuselage. correct. He's leading the charge in Quiz the Consultant. <laughs> Dr. Steve Dorman, thank you so much for being the first guinea pig you, on Sam. Quiz the Consultant. It's been a pleasure and good luck to you all doing paces. It does get better after paces. <laughs> so, hopefully, listeners, that will cover all aspects of aortic, aortic stenosis you might be asked to approach in a cardiology station. We have been delighted to be joined by Dr. Steve Dorman, consultant cardiologist in TAVI at the Bristol Heart Institute, to give us all the information we need to tackle this critically important PACES station. As you know, we're always trying to improve here at the Pre-PACES podcast, and we would love to hear from you. You can get in touch via the usual social media channels on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pre-PACES podcast, and on email, it's Pre-PACES podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcasts.